Uh, you can be seated. Well, good morning, Seven Mile Road. My name is Clint Patronella. For uh, those of you I know and those of you I don't know, um, my role here at Seven Mile Road is as a uh, resident church planter and ministries coordinator. And so, what that means, that kind of dual role, is that on the one hand, I love Seven Mile Melrose, and it is my joy to serve this congregation. And so, if there's any way that I can help plug you into uh, serving or help serve you really in any kind of way, it'd be my joy to do that. At the same time, there is a growing burden and hope for us to plant a gospel-centered, healthy church in Waltham, and uh, over the next 18 months, Lord willing, um, we will do that. It's my joy to get to share with you out of God's Word this morning. My job as the preacher is to sit in the text all week and let it read me, let it do the work and business on my own heart, and then bring that to share uh, with you guys um, this morning. I am not the point. Um, my job is to point to Jesus, who is the point. And so let me pray for us that we would uh, see Jesus in this text today. And so, Father, thank you that you are merciful and gracious, and you meet us. And so meet us this morning, we ask. Hear our prayer that you would uh, reveal to us, show us uh, your Son in the Scriptures, that we may have life, that we may have the freedom that he came to give us. And so do that, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen. So do you guys remember the headlines back in 2013 in Cleveland, Ohio? One of the headlines read, Alive and Safe. And over the next few days, we would come to know the horror as news spread, details came in about the now infamous Cleveland kidnapping case. Do you guys remember that? There was a decade-long captivity of Amanda Berry, Gina DeJesus, and Michelle Knight. And, and, in, on, and in May in 2013, it finally came to an end. And these three women had been abducted, oppressed, and abused, and held captive for about 10 years by the vicious hand of Ariel Castro. And now there is no way to even begin to imagine all of the physical pain that these women experienced as they were prisoners in Castro's sick world. There's no way to even begin to enter into and imagine the cumulative effect, that daily torment as they're physically and sexually, and mentally, and emotionally abused. I mean, at every single level, these women were in bondage and oppression. And when the police finally showed up and broke in and liberated these women, one of them, Michelle Knight, ran and jumped into the arms of her Savior, the police officer, and said, you've saved us. And as she held on tightly, she said, don't let go. Don't let go. And as this tragic story of evil preying on the helpless, the only way that we who were watching this unfold, the only way that we could stomach what was going on was knowing that it was finally over. The only way we could even process it was knowing that they had been liberated. And their rescue then came with results that were necessary, right? Castro was put in prison. We would later find out that he would commit suicide there. And now these women had to walk down the long road to recovery, and today, as we read in Acts 16, verses 16 through 24, we see a similar story of rescue. Similar story where uh, uh, we'll see this big idea emerge that Jesus sets the captive free. And in this unbelievable rescue is then followed by results that demand our attention. And then there's going to be responses that we need to carefully consider. And so my hope is that you would open your Bible or follow with me on the screen in Acts 16 to see how Jesus sets the captive free, and to help frame our time together, we'll look at the rescue, the results, and the response. So first, let's get into 
this text in verse 16. Here's what these words from Scripture say. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. So I want to stop right there. You remember last time when we looked at Lydia, we saw that Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke had arrived in Philippi, and they went down to the place of prayer at the riverside to share the gospel because there wasn't a synagogue in the city. And as they were preaching faithfully, one woman named Lydia came to faith as she heard the gospel. And the words of Scripture say that the Lord quietly turned her heart to him. There was no fanfare, just faithful gospel preaching and beautiful hearing, receiving, believing, repenting, and changing. And her heart was so turned towards the gospel that she opens up her home and they set up a ministry base there. And then the days that followed, they did what all of us probably would have done, which is return to the place where they saw an open door. And as they do, the scripture tells us that they met a girl. Now, we're not given her name, but she's identified as a slave girl. And what Luke uses here is a technical term for a young female slave that would have been somewhere between the ages of 10 and 14. I mean, think about that. She's a tweener. I mean, she's just barely older than a child and younger than a teenager. And there's no way to know the abuse and horror that she's known in the short decade of her life. And so maybe she was sold into slavery by her parents. The very people who were supposed to love for her and care for her and nurture her are nowhere to be found. Or maybe she was orphaned and found herself in slavery. But whatever the backstory on this girl is, the point is this. Her life has been rough. And if we were to know all the circumstances surrounding her life, it would break our heart. Now, as we move on in the text, it says that this slave girl had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And so not only is she physically possessed by her slave owners, the Bible tells us that she's spiritually possessed. Right here, the words say spirit of divination. Literally, the Greek words read, she had a python spirit. Now, no modern translations will tell you that it's a python spirit because us as modern readers are far too removed to have understood what exactly a python spirit meant. But every ancient reader who would have seen this would have known exactly what that was. So a little background is helpful here. So for the Greek nerds in the back, this is for you. So according to Greek mythology, there was a city of Delphi in Greece, and it was home to the famous oracle of Delphi. And it was guarded by a great serpent named Python. Now people from all over the known world would make these pilgrimages to the oracle at Delphi to receive prophecy and predictions about the future. And as the legends go, um, the god Apollo had come to reside over this oracle at Delphi because he had slayed the, the ancient serpent Python. And it was believed in Greek mythology that Apollo would give divine insight and predictions and prophecies about the future to his priestess there named Pythia. And then she would give out those divine revelations to any who sought her out. Now, this slave girl was not the famous Pythia at the Oracle of Delphi, but the word Python spirit kind of became a shorthand way to describe a person who had an ability to foresee and foretell the future. And what we'll see in this passage is this girl is possessed by a demonic spirit that enables her to give prophetic answers uh, to people who would come and ask her. And so what happened is her slave owners realized that she had this gift, and so they started to exploit it. 
I mean, in Philippi, she would have been in high demand, right? We see this today, that people are constantly thirsting for uh, details about the future, what lies ahead of them. And so given this high demand to know things about the future and the low supply, there's not a ton of people walking around with this ability, her owners saw a business opportunity and they exploited her condition and they started to make stacks of cash. Now, these aren't swindlers on a road show. They're not going from town to town, manipulating people and then getting out of there when people know that they're a fraud. This is not one of those 1-800 psychic lines or one of those fortune tellers in shady neighborhoods playing dress up. She is literally possessed by a powerful force who is using her to exert influence and power over the people in this city. With every prediction she made and every dollar added to the slave owner's bank account, their grip tightened on this girl. And not only is she used as a slave for their lust for monetary gain, but as a slave, she would have been used to satisfy any other lust that they had as well. And so essentially what we have here is a girl trafficked by her slave owners for their personal gain who's also possessed by a demon. And so if you're starting to think this sounds like some crazy cross between the movie Taken and The Exorcist, you're exactly right. This slave girl, remember, could not be more different than Lydia. You remember Lydia? She was that seasoned, independent woman of reputable character. She's affluent. She's cosmopolitan. She owns her own business. This slave girl is young. She's vulnerable. And she's completely controlled by her owners and this demonic spirit. She's literally oppressed at every level. Where Lydia was wealthy, free, and powerful, she is poor, bound, and overpowered. Lydia is elite, and this slave girl is exploited. Lydia is an owner, and this girl is owned. Lydia earns money for profit, and yet this girl is an object of profit. Her humanity has been completely stripped away. To help bring it down, if Lydia is a high-end business savvy woman who owns a boutique in Newberry, on Newberry Street, then this slave girl is the drug-addicted prostitute being pimped out in the sully alleys and streets of our city. She had something others wanted, and she became an object of gain. And so as we move forward in the text, we see these words that she, this slave girl, followed Paul and us, crying out. Here's what she said. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So this slave girl is led by this demonic spirit, and she started following Paul and his crew as they were ministering in Philippi. And the text tells us she wasn't silently stalking, kind of going in and out of the alleys, but she's actively crying out, trying to get people's attention. And, and this show is starting to hijack Paul's message and his mission and his method. And so let me unpack that for you, because at first it doesn't sound that bad, right? She's saying that they're servants of God, and that's true. And so, so far, so good, right? But let's take a closer look at what she's saying. First, we have the title, The Most High God. Now, to a Jew hearing this phrase, they would have thought, well, of course, the Most High God, that's, that's got to be the one true God, Yahweh, right? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament. But to a Gentile hearing that phrase, they have a completely different worldview. They have a completely different set of understandings about who God is. They would have interpreted that to mean Zeus or any of the highest gods in the Greek pantheon. And that's kind of the same way today, isn't it? When someone, uh, if they say, I believe in God, that doesn't really tell you all that much, does it? 
Because you've got to ask some further questions to go, well, what exactly do you mean when you say God? I mean, is it the God of the Bible? Or is it the God that you've completely fabricated? You've stripped away all of his rule and reign. But you don't know just by the generic term God what they mean. And so that's what's going on here. And let's look, take a closer look at her testimony. When she says, they proclaim to you the way of salvation. This word salvation, again, you got to imagine, these are, these are not a Christian people in the 21st century. They don't understand that to mean um, how Jesus died for their sins. The word salvation is not an exclusively Christian idea. You see, every, every religion on the face of the planet has some understanding that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And every religion has a plan or a method to overcome that reality. Every religion has a plan of salvation. But you see, the Christian message of salvation is this. It's the good news that God has come to deal with sin and death by sending Jesus to take our sin and to die our death. And in exchange, give us his righteousness and his life. And as a result, not only are we forgiven, but we're cleansed of all unrighteousness. And that would be enough, right? That is good news. But God's mercy and his grace go so far as to make us citizens of his kingdom. Members of his family adopted as children. And if that weren't enough, as his children, we get an inheritance that is eternal, unfading, undefiled, imperishable, and it's kept right now in heaven until Christ returns to make all things new. But that's not what she's saying. You see, her message is open to interpretation. It contains elements of truth, but it lacks the distinction necessary to make it really good news. Her message isn't clear. And given her reputation in the city, it only adds further confusion. As they're walking around and people are seeing her with Paul, they might assume, well, Paul and that girl, they're kind of doing ministry together. Or they would have assumed maybe Paul and his guys can tell us the future. Maybe we'll go to them for that. No matter the story, what's happening here is her message, her show is confusing their ministry. None of what she's saying is actually pointing people to Jesus. And so doesn't this have every mark of that ancient serpent from the garden? Right? I mean, Satan, through this python, has been spilling venomous lies from the very beginning. He takes the truth, he twists it just enough to sound good and enticing, but he changes it enough to lead you down a path of destruction. Not only did Satan do that to our first parents in the garden, didn't he do it with Jesus when he was in the wilderness during his temptation? And now he's doing it here because Satan hates the advance of the gospel. And so she kept doing this for many days. And then it says, Paul, having become greatly annoyed. Now, I need to stop here because this is not a one-time coincidence where they just kind of happen to pass, uh, cross paths. She's been doing this for many days, stalking and harassing them. And this persistence and the confusion of the message drove Paul to become greatly annoyed. Now, I know some of you are going, how could he get annoyed? Look at this poor girl. She's in slavery and bondage. Where's the compassion? Where's the mercy? But this is not the kind of annoyance that you get when you're tired of your kids running around saying, puppy, monkey, baby, puppy, monkey, baby, on infinite repeat. Thank you, Mountain Dew. That's not what this is. This word means a holy provocation. 
This word has a heavier meaning. It means that Paul is deeply troubled. He's disturbed. This is not a mere inconvenience. This is that word that you use when grief, pain, and anger collide. Paul's disturbed by the reality that a young girl is oppressed by a demon. He's disturbed by the exploitation of her captivity by her owners. Instead of helping this young girl, her owners have seized power over her to make profit. And he's angry that his ministry is being confused by her testimony. And so Paul's deeply troubled and he can't let it go on. So what does he say? He turns to this girl and he says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. You see, Paul is disturbed, and so he moves and takes action. And notice, he doesn't attack the girl. She's not the problem. He moves towards the spirit and the demon that's controlling her. Paul serves the Most High God, and he has the power over demons. And so Paul comes armed with nothing but the name of Jesus, and he commands this demon to leave. Now, I have to stop here for a minute. Because I know you're looking at me like, this sounds crazy. You're telling me you actually believe that there was a demon possessing this girl? You don't think she was just mentally deranged? And some of you are saying you actually believe that you believe in demons. The answer is yes, I do, and I think you should too. So let's listen to one former skeptic, C.S. Lewis, and here's what he said. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe in their existence and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. What is he saying? He's saying either extreme, outright disbelief or obsessive belief makes the same error in opposite directions. And so if you're here this morning and you operate out of a worldview, and by the way, when I say the word worldview, what I mean is it's simply a framework and a lens by which you process and understand everything around you. Everybody has a way of looking at things. And so if in your worldview you say, no, 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 there's no demons. Everything has a scientific explanation. The problem is that, with that is that you won't be able then to, to account for the things that are scientifically unexplainable. So let me give you a couple examples. First of all, love has no scientific explanation. And so you'll have to reduce that down to just a series of endorphins that go off in your brain. And the problem of evil that everybody knows exists is it's not some, some cosmic uh, problem to be dealt with. It's literally just waiting for humanity to gain enough advances in psychology and sociology to deal with the problem of evil. Morality will constantly change with the tide of the culture. And if you believe that everything is just boiled down to science, ultimately human beings are nothing more than the meaningless result of unguided natural selection. What that means is this. If there is nothing more than matter, substance, then ultimately you don't matter. And if you think I'm being unfair to the position, listen to Bertrand Russell. He was a modern philosopher who believed this and actually had the guts to say it straight. So here's what he said. Brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. That's what happens when you follow that to its logical conclusion.
conclusion. And so I reject that outright. I operate out of a biblically shaped and informed worldview, which means this. I believe in God the Father and in his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. Because of that, I believe in his word and the Bible. And when this passage says that a demon was exercised out of this girl, I have no reason to doubt its validity and truth. You see, the Bible says over and over and over again that we are at war with our flesh, we're at war with the world, and we're at war with Satan. It's an unavoidable reality. The Bible begins with Satan attacking our first parents, and the story ends with Christ conquering him and throwing him into the lake of fire and sulfur. And at every point along the way, you will be confronted with the reality of evil and the demonic. And so in this passage, we're confronted by a girl who's possessed by a demon and controlled at every level. I know, no, I know most of us don't go through life with that kind of oppression, but make no mistake about it. Apart from Christ and the liberation that he offers, we are all tempted, influenced, and tormented by the realm of Satan. The Bible is emphatic on this point. You are either in the kingdom of God, waging war against his enemies of sin, death, and Satan, or you are a rebel in the employ of Satan, and his sadistic and pathetic attempt to try to snatch glory and power from the hand of God. And this passage is clear that Jesus has the power to set the captive free. Liberty comes in the name of Jesus, or it doesn't come at all. This passage makes clear that if he can set this little girl free who is oppressed at every level, then he can set you free as well. This is good news. Seven Mile, do you believe that? In an instant, this little girl is rescued, redeemed, restored, and delivered from oppression. Jesus sets the captive free. And so we've seen the incredible result. Let's look at uh, the rescue. Let's look at the results. So verse 19 says this, When her owners saw that their hope for gain was gone. Let me stop right there. The first result that we see is that a little girl is saved. And I mean that in the fullest sense. How do we know that she became a Christian? Because it doesn't say, and her heart was turned to the Lord. And while this text doesn't explicitly say it, there's really good evidence that she was saved. First of all, we have the the whole story of Scripture. There is not a single deliverance on the pages of Scripture that does not result in salvation um, on the heels of it. Nobody gets delivered from that kind of oppression and doesn't then, in unbelievable grace, turn towards Jesus. Second, in this passage, we are in kind of part two of this episode in Philippi. And what we'll see is that Luke is writing about, we've, we've seen Lydia, and next week we'll look at the jailer, which are all explicit conversion stories. And what we see there is that this girl is kind of sandwiched in the middle. And what Luke is doing is showing us each one of these persons come with a completely different background. They all have their own completely different issues. And guess what? Jesus is able to break through and save every single one of them. It shows the power and the flexibility of the gospel to save. And so we don't know if she was saved right in that moment or if she was saved in the days and weeks that followed. Maybe this exorcism was that moment when she did cross over from death to life. Oftentimes we experience this. We know that stories of new life sometimes feel more like a process, right? That you're kind of coming along slowly and Jesus is moving in your life kind of bit by bit as you're moving towards the gospel. All conversions do have that instantaneous moment. 
where a person crosses over from death to life, from darkness to light, from slave to free, from blind to sight. But sometimes there's a longer process leading up to that point. And maybe that's helpful. Maybe that describes him, maybe how, how you came to know Jesus. Regardless, maybe she needed a few days or weeks to process all that happened. I mean, you can imagine what she would have been going through and processing the last 10 years of her life. But once her owners saw that she would no longer be an asset to them, she became a liability. I love to think that maybe Lydia, who was around at the time, would have seen this girl and used her wealth to purchase this girl's freedom. But whatever happened, we know that she was uh, cared for by this new community of believers. I mean, can't you see Lydia, the woman that she, of God that she was, moving in to nurture this girl? You see, the beauty of Jesus had captivated Lydia's heart, and now the power of Jesus had delivered this girl. And when we look at the end of Acts 16, we see that this early Philippian church met at Lydia's house. And years later, Paul would write them a letter called, the, called Philippians. And in verse 1-6, he says these words, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This girl was a slave in every way, and there's no way after experiencing that kind of power and grace that she just chunks the deuce and walks away unchanged. I'm sure that this good work in her was brought to completion. And so, rescued from oppression, this girl came to experience the beautiful results of being set free by Jesus. It sounds just like Jesus in John chapter 8, When he says, if the son has set you free, then you are free indeed. So the first result is that a girl is saved. The second result is that a city is turned upside down. So uh, these slave owners, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So you have to understand that's what the gospel does. The name of Jesus is not a tolerant name. You cannot have the freeing liberating power of Jesus and expect to maintain the status quo. And these men do not like what's happened, and they want nothing to do with Jesus, and so they seek to kill his messengers. You see, the good deed done to the girl was not viewed as good by her owners. When Paul exercised the spirit that possessed her, in doing so, he exercised their means of income. She could no longer tell fortunes. And it's one thing for a preacher to move into a city and kind of stay on the fringe and be quiet and be nice, kind of be out of sight, out of mind. But when Paul and his crew come in, they're preaching on the forefronts. And when it interferes with people's business, people get angry. And as they saw, Paul and, uh, and Silas and Luke and Timothy had tampered with their property and their profit, and their profit. They assumed that these men were not Romans or even Greeks, but wandering Jews up to no good. And so Paul and Silas are taken to the authorities by the slave owners, and there in the marketplace, they lodge their complaint against them, and they demand that action be taken. And so Philippi was a Roman colony under Roman rule, and these leaders, these magistrates, they were charged with maintaining the peace and keeping order. And Paul and Silas are dragged into the marketplace for an impromptu trial. And the verse says, when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. 
They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. You see, their accusers now fabricate a story full of exaggeration, and they play on the anti-Semitism that was rampant throughout the Roman Empire. And they know, these slave owners know, that the magistrates have to maintain order. And what's happening is the crowds are getting agitated as, as these accusations are being launched at these two Jews. You see, to the magistrates, Paul and Silas are just a couple of Jews, and no one will notice if they happen to go missing. And so this sorry excuse for a trial moves from accusation to sentencing. There's no due process here. They don't even give a chance to give their own defense, just lies and hasty action. And now the crowd joins in attacking them. The magistrates tear their garments off of Paul and Silas and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And last verse, having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. They're stripped of their clothes to humiliate them. They're beaten with rods to silence them. And they're thrown into the prison to make them think twice about ever returning to their city to preach the gospel again. What is good news for the girl is bad news for her owners. And the result is opposition and torment for Paul and Silas. So we've seen the rescue that Jesus sets the captive free. We've seen the results that a girl is saved and a city is turned upside down. Let's finish out by looking at how we need to respond. So as I see it, there are three responses in this passage, and each one demands our attention and consideration before we walk out of here this morning. And so the first response is of the community, and I've called it gospel, safety, and time. Our hope is that Seven Mile Road would just be known by that. In Acts 16.40, we see that the brothers and sisters of the early Philippian church gathered in Lydia's home. What we see is that a community responded to this girl and became a safe place for her to heal and process all that she's been through. This girl without a name became a daughter and a sister in Christ where she could be known and loved. She was taken in by this community and cared for by the believers. And so when the gospel breaks the bonds of addiction and oppression, Seven Mile Road, will we be a safe place for them to walk down their road to recovery? Our hope is as we're going out as ministers of the gospel that we would come into contact with those who are tormented, those who are walking down hard roads. Will we be a place where it's safe for them to come and be healed? Will we open up our community to the broken and be a patient and safe place that is full of the gospel? When we do that, it gets messy. It's tiring. It's costly. It's heartbreaking. But love compels us to move toward the hurt and the broken. So Seven Mile Road, let's be all in on that together. Second response is the slave owners. You see, they saw, don't forget, they saw the power of Jesus' name, didn't they? They saw what Jesus could do in the life of this girl. And they had this moment when they could have laid down their pride and they could have asked Paul for that kind of salvation. 
You see, the power, mercy, and grace of Jesus is not just for the oppressed. In God's unbelievable mercy and grace, he extends it to oppressors. And these guys could have come to him. See, you either accept the gospel with reckless abandon, glad submission, and unending awe, or you reject it with reckless animosity, glad rejection, and unending disdain. You see, these slave owners believe that they're the ones in control. They believe that they have power. And sure, they've got power over this little girl, but they're in just as much bondage as she is. Their mistake is to see that they're the ones who are free and in control and that she's the one who's bound and in slavery. And their arrogance blinds them to see their need to be set free. And they miss it. They miss the grace of God that is right in front of them. They're captives in need of freedom, but they're so blinded by their own greed, their own lust for money and power, that they miss the freedom that Jesus offers. Don't let that be us. So will you respond to the freedom that Jesus offers with joy and submission or with fear and rejection? Last response, the girl. Let's end with the girl. She responded to God's grace and deliverance. The name of Jesus delivered her from demon possession. You see, she was unable to deliver herself. And so she accepted God's grace and rescue. Because there is no liberation and freedom apart from Jesus Christ. And that should speak to us because all of us are bound in some form or fashion. Sometimes it's apparent, it's on the surface, everybody knows it. Sometimes we work hard to bury that deep down so that nobody knows. And we only know it when we have the courage to be honest with ourselves. It's not a win for us today to leave here and go, man, that girl got that girl was delivered because we're all in need of rescue. Who is this rescue for? It's for everyone because all of us are in bondage and slavery. And I want you to see that more than this girl needed to be delivered out of her slavery, more than she needed to be delivered from the bondage of the demon, she needed to be known and loved by Jesus. She needed to know that her sin had a remedy. She needed to know that her death was overcome by the death of Christ. And it's easy in a passage like this to see this slave girl and in comparison assume we're free. In a sense, that's true, right? We live in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, and that is a magnificent blessing. But I think sometimes that blessing of freedom blinds us to the reality that apart from Christ, we are slaves. We're slaves to sin and the passions of our flesh. And we know that, don't we? That no one is ultimately in control of their own life. That we're all controlled by whatever we love the most. You see, whatever we love the most actually controls us. And so let me give you a couple examples. If you live for people's approval, I mean, you've got to have people's approval. You've got to know that they love you and accept you. Then, you, then what? You'll be controlled by the people whose approval you so desperately need. Or take power. If you live for power, that you've got to have it, then you're going to do everything in your life to make sure that you you maintain that kind of power. And if anything or anyone gets in your way, you'll take them out. Take comfort. If you live for comfort and the, the pleasures of this world, then you will orient your life. You'll spend your money. You'll orient your time. Everything for the things that give you 
that pleasure. If you live for control, then you'll be driven to have everything go according to your plan. We could keep going. The lists are endless, the things that we give ourselves to. You see, Jesus could save this slave girl. Why? Because he himself had become a slave. He took on our sin and our slavery and died. And when he rose again, he rose with power to slave and redeem and liberate the captive. So the proper response for all of us is to embrace and joyfully submit to the freedom that Jesus offers because there is no liberty and freedom apart from Christ. So we've seen Jesus set the captive free, and that demands a response from us. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all. That's every single one of us. And all of us are in need of that kind of freedom that Jesus offers. Don't miss this. Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia. and He was powerful enough for the slave girl. And he has what you need to. And who knows what you'll become when he sets you free. Let's pray. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know how the sin so easily entangles and binds us up. And in your grace, in your mercy, you set the liberator. You set Jesus, the redeemer, to set us free. And so, Father, I pray as we respond that you would move us towards your mercy and your grace. Don't let us leave here unchanged. Don't let us leave here without the freedom that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. Set our hearts on that this morning, we pray in Christ's name.